Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 14th of December, and my name is Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This is the last BungaCast of 2022, and what a year it's been. We left the pandemic behind to encounter war and inflation. We'll be back in the new year with some reflections on the major themes of 2022 with our guest Ashley Frawley. Uh, but for today, I'm here with Philip Cunliffe, but I should note George Hoare is away. Hi, Phil. Hey, how's it going? Now, before we get started, I want to apologize. We've had some exceptional technical difficulties today, so my sound quality from this point forward is pretty mediocre. If you're new, I promise it's not usually like this, so sorry, but today it's poor. We'll be back to normal in the next episodes. We also have a guest on today, um, Anton Jaeger, a BungaCast recidivist, and we're going to be discussing his article in Jacobin, From Bowling Alone to Posting Alone. Hey, Anton. Hey, hey. Glad to be back. Yeah, no. Great to, great to have you back. Um, a bit from a different place. You're, you're in New York right now. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. I'm on a, on a Yankee exodus. You're, you're there to avoid distractions um, in a quiet little place called New York. Exactly. Get some more time. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so just a couple of quick things before we get properly started. Um, you may have seen, we have a uh, listener survey out, um, today would be, I think when you're hearing this, the last day to fill it out. If you still haven't done so and would like to, we'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, the link is in the show notes and for our Italian listeners, uh, the Italian edition of our book, uh, has come out. It's just come out at the end of December, end of November, excuse me. Um, and there will be book launch events in Milan and Rome, probably on the 12th and 14th of January, uh, but we'll confirm these dates uh, as soon as they're nailed down um, and we'll put out information, um, but hope to see you there. So uh, to get properly kicked off, um, Anton, you've written this essay uh, reflecting back on Robert Putnam's quite famous book called Bowling Alone, which came out in the year 2000. Um, but your essay tries to develop that, talking about not just atomization, but how it affects politics and really how this atomization entails a crisis of politics as an activity. Um, so I think we'd maybe start off, um, firstly, Anton, just maybe I, I assume you've gone back and reread uh, Putnam's book, but um, did it mark you the, maybe the first time you read it? Was there something kind of lingering? And Phil as well, for that matter, um, you know, kind of some thoughts on the book, on, on what marked you about it. Um, I just remembered it as not just an undergraduate sort of textbook, classic, but more as a meme or something that I even heard teachers at high school mention in that it indicated a social scientific talking point or cliche that was around in the 2000s. Um, but it was only in the course of the 2010s that I realized that maybe it was worth revisiting this book and seeing what the actual argument was and how it has held up. So move beyond the memeified quality I was usually associated with it. And when I reread it, I was um, pleasantly surprised, but also depressed by how well it's held up. Um, it's not just that many of the developments he diagnosed have become much worse, as Jack also put in the header, 
but that he predicts a lot of the developments in the 2010s, for example, around digitalization and the internet, which are actually quite impressive. And so even though it's quintessentially a product of the 1990s and it very sp speaks to the civic crisis literature of the 1990s, um, it really seemed to speak to the present in many ways. And I think that was my real motivation for writing the piece, where I had the feeling that people hadn't actually properly celebrated bicentennial of the book's publication, and they hadn't actually been willing to reckon with what the book was saying and what it still was saying to us today. So. Yeah, I mean, my... my um, so my kind of engagement with the text was somewhat different. Um, I... I knew. I mean, it came out as I was, as if I recall rightly. So it came out, or I became familiar with it at least roughly as I was finishing my undergraduate. But it was certainly, um, you know, kind of it imprinted itself on um, public and social scientific discussions at the time as being something significant. And I can't say that it's, you know, this was still kind of even pre kind of dot com crash. So I can't say that it really spoke to. Um, you know, spoke to my everyday experience, not having lived in the West before my um, undergraduate education and before kind of, you know, the all the stuff on digitalization and all that stuff just seemed, I suppose, difficult to conceptualize how it might work. You know, I mean, chat rooms and, um, you know, MSN Messenger and Hotmail and, you know, I mean, that was the kind of the era of the internet at the time and the thought that that might become more, um, more than that, it was difficult beyond the kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, William Gibson style um, riffing. It seemed difficult to understand how how that might change people's social interactions short of, you know, fully inhabiting cyberspace, you know. Um, so, you know, I was I was aware of it. I was conscious of it. I read it as kind of as part of the um, part of the uh, part of my undergraduate degree, though it wasn't a kind of it hadn't wasn't quite a staple of the literature um, at the time, or at least I can't recall it being on any of my reading lists. It came I came across it um, as a result of participating in some conferences. Um, but nonetheless, since then, it became kind of a staple of um, my undergraduate teaching. So most of my kind of engagement with with the idea, outside of the um, outside of that kind of context, has been in um, in undergraduate teaching, and certainly it seems to resonate with students. And one way in which you can kind of track similar indices of um, of that is, uh, or you know, it's a quick straw poll in a seminar room of how many undergraduates are active members of societies. Um, and I saw some statistics, I can't remember where, but, you know, kind of participation and membership of student in student life also shows the same kind of downward trend that um, all the bowling alone, you know, any graph from bowling alone would show a similar kind of pattern. And so it was a way to kind of get um, to engage students to think about um, the social dimensions of politics. And, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that to. Um, to uh, belittle it or make it seem like it's purely kind of an academic talking point or a pedagogic kind of um, trick. I think it is, um, as Anton suggests, it is, um, you know, has genuinely powerful insights and it does need to be taken seriously in terms of its implications and consequences for not only, I mean, you know, for social life, obviously, but also for political life, given that all the, um, all the kind of, 
political ideas and frameworks that we shuffle about and seem to kind of um, oscillate between are all inherited from eras, you know, from mass, from mass society. Mm. And nobody, I don't think, I still don't think anybody's really worked through the consequences of um, that disjuncture. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, actually, you saying that, um, you know, you encountered it probably more as a meme. And I think that's probably right, because it is one of these, a, a book about structural social changes, which, um, firstly, is a type of thing which um, isn't kind of commonly discussed, you know, kind of pop sociology at the most probably will dwell on how people are uh, kind of living online, or um, often kind of hand wringing about what the contemporary world is doing to, to our kids. You know, I think that's kind of a, a, a staple of um, pop sociological writing. Um, but it, the one thing that people probably do not reflect on, and this book encouraged people to do so, is that question of membership in associations. Because things might be generally discussed as moving to the left or moving to the right, or that certain churches are growing or others are, you know, shrinking. Um, but that there is a kind of, that there's a mass um, transformation of the way that we socialize with one another is something that probably unless you are uh you know have done at least undergraduate sociology is something that you're probably not going to reflect upon and um as phil writes it, it kind of underwrites it's a phenomenon that underwrites so much of politics or the absence of politics um that it's uh it's worth reflecting on and, and your essays um i think really excellent in trying to tease out some of the more important and salient contemporary political consequences of that um, so d before we get on to the politics, I want to just briefly dwell on something which um, the book uses as a kind of uh, analytic um, centerpiece, um, which is that question of social capital. And I think that's, a, that's another one of those pop sociology terms or sociological terms which has been popularized that people do tend to use um, and probably tend to use um, in a fairly uh, anodyne fashion to just mean, you know, how many social connections you have. Um, but you know you're you're critical of that uh, lens in in the essay. So why don't you tell us a little bit of what uh, your criticisms are? Yeah, I've spoken about this with friends recently who've been pushing back quite heavily against my critique of this notion. We say this is just uh, infantile leftism. Uh, this is a perfectly legitimate social scientific notion. Why would you object to it? Um, and I guess one of the first reasons why he had to use that notion is just the demands of quantification. So if he wants to measure associational strength and these changes in associational life, you have to look for some kind of metric and social capital is just one way of expressing that metric. So it's his way of saying associational density and that in, it's not really an injurious or a dangerous notion and I don't think we should be that skeptical of it. Where I do think it's symptomatic of the 1990s, again, is that it speaks to a certain market-friendly sensibility is that so much of the discussion about the crisis of civic life in the 1990s, and you saw this also in the Clinton administration with the welfare reforms or the fears over the, the decline of self-reliance, mainly black communities, but also white communities, is that it's a purely instrumental interpretation of what social ties give you. So social ties are useful because they give you competitive advantages on the market. So as I said, if you were in a society or you worked for an NGO or you worked or was at, were at a union or an association, that's handy for your college application and might be good for jobs. But that's a purely individualistic interpretation of what associational density actually gets you. Because what in the 20th century associational density gave you is not just control over the state, but also control over our collective economic and political life. 
And that insight is strangely absent in the Putnam book, um, just as he doesn't have a proper discussion of union strength or, for example, there's no mention of the Volcker shock, there's no mention of deindustrialization, which were actually these massive moments that induce a crisis, not just for left-wing civil society, but also for right-wing civil society. Um, and I even started reading into this, but if you look at the financial effects of the Volcker shock and the 1973 recession, on the membership of some of these civil society groups, the results are actually um, pretty shocking um, because, of course, associational life does also correlate with growth levels. The more money there is, the more easier it is to sponsor or to finance certain forms of group association. But then in the 70s and 80s, there's a sort of active push on behalf of capital to people just to get pushed out of these associations. And he buys into this marketization frame but again, that doesn't detract from the fact that he's still onto something. There's a deep rational yeah. core to what he's saying. And what I always felt certainly in the 2000 and 2010s, and certainly when I actually properly read the entire book last year, is that it resonated experientially in a very powerful way, not just with my experience of the 2010s, but even with my experience as a teenager in the 2000s. Um, I just remember a really privatized, claustral world, in which, of course, there were friendship circles, but which the world in which my parents grew up, in which the church and the party, whether it was a socialist party or Christian Democratic party, was this omnipresent uh, factor in people's personal lives. There really was no distinction between public and private if you were a socialist or a Christian. And I always heard these stories from uh, my parents and from my uncles, and I said, that is unimaginable to me. I can't even imagine a world in which something like a church or a party would have an active stake in your personal life. Um, and when I reread it, I recently I said, well, surely we need to talk about this more because it seems so incredibly plausible to me that we should be having this discussion. Yeah, I, I think one thing is the uh, kind of tendency to look at this social question purely socially, right? And to cut out the, cut out the politics. Um, we, and that kind of always resolves itself into just a concern about you know, the loneliness crisis, which I think is the contemporary way it's talked about, um, the people that it might just, uh, you know, the uh, lack of associational density just makes people miserable. Um, so it makes society not function well. And ultimately, it's a, an analysis of society um, purely on kind of its own given terms. And I guess ultimately, will be just about how, making the market function. And so one thing that, that struck me is a similarity of this discussion to one which uh, is also very uh, contemporary, which is the question of trust and, and concern about uh, declining trust in society. And the two are very closely linked. And you might even say that the question of socializationalism is foundational to the question of trust, right? So if people are memberships of organizations, they trust each other less. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, um, I, and I think what, what um, hammers home the point about a certain, you know, small c conservative um, understanding of this, um, or the way that the way that it's understood purely on social terms and not politicized um, is the way that trust is always a, a seen as a key asset. Um, and a, the term asset is used uh, appropriately, I think, a key asset for market society, right? That like basically the market won't function very well if we don't have trust between actors um, because everything then becomes litigated and, and wrapped up in the courts and so on. Um, so it's, um, I think it's important to, yeah, try to that, extract the, the But that's important, isn't it, for... Um... I mean, that is for a market-based society, then that is important as to whether or not the market functions, right? Yeah. I mean... But I mean, are you suggesting it's... Um, 
you're suggesting it's bad, you know, that it's only understood in terms of its relationship to the market? No, I'm saying that that, that ends up the default under, you know, so if you're taking the bowling alone thesis, um, if you do not politicize it and understand it only socially, it will inevitably um, resolve into just a concern with the maintenance of market society and making, you know, market society work better rather than um, concern with right. progress, let, let alone kind of, um, you know, any radical change to society. But I think that's not that big of an issue insofar as, I'm, I prefer a cultural sediment to market society that makes it function more smoothly and <laughs> induces less anomie. And in that sense, it's just the right-wing reading of this problem, which is also a valid reading. I think we should definitely be clear mm. it's not our reading. We want to politicize it. We want to have a different version of what associational strength actually gets you, which is a possibility of collective change. But I think it's also, as I said in the piece, a massive crisis on the right. And if you look at how conservative parties are trying to relate to the changing culture of so many capitalist nations, it's very clear that um, the crisis of belonging and the crisis of membership also generates huge instability and volatility on parts of the right. It, it, yeah. It's almost like a Daniel Bell argument, right? The sort of cultural contradictions of late capitalism. But I think that's part of the story that Putnam is telling is mm -hmm. that the atomization which capital forced on the public sphere in the 80s and 90s also makes capitalist society much less manageable and governable. It generates all kinds of social pathologies and it generates unpredictability, which is a problem even for people who want to just stabilize that society. Yeah. Okay. So that's really good. I just wanted to, you know, kind of just put a pin in that um, question, but maybe Phil, if you want to respond to it really quickly, because we're going to come back to it. So this is part of the reason that Putnam was such a good teaching tool is because it cut across expectations um, in terms of uh, kind of left-wing and right-wing students, right? So, you know, right-wing students, I mean, their, you know, their kind of um, instincts were that the problems of sociability are to do with the left. Um, and for left-wing students, their similar kind of instincts were their problems of sociability are the fault of the right. Um, you know, so if it's the fault of the left, it's kind of, um, you know, identity politics or sexual politics or um, anti-family politics or suspicion of religion. And if you're on the left, then, you know, it's um, the market, it's big corporations, it's manipulation by the media and so on. So and this is what was so effective for Putnam. And I think this speaks to you know, again, like to underscore, I guess, what Anton was saying, but it speaks to the fact he's identified a genuine trend that kind of destabilizes and scrambles your, you know, what would be maybe if you took purely just kind of one set of political lenses to look at society, um, that these are kind of, this is, you know, a long-term secular trend that affects society as such and therefore, you know, kind of cuts across the usual explanations that are still provided both by left and right for mm. you know, problems of collective life. Yeah, no, very good. Uh, and we're going to come back to the question, um, which is central to Anton's piece about the extent to which, you know, associationalism and its transformation matters to 
the right versus the left to capital versus labor and so on. Um, j- just to kind of illustrate it, I guess, a little bit more, because I'm, there's many people probably listen to this who have, maybe haven't read the book, but are vaguely familiar with the thesis or familiar with ideas that we've discussed on this podcast about atomization before. Um, but just to tease out some strands to it. Um, so I think firstly, just on, on parties, because you had already referred to that, Anton, in, in you know, hearing accounts of how um, the party, you know, whether socialist or Christian democratic, were so important in people's lives in you know a generation or two ago um it's interesting because when you when you um read accounts of this and, and people are saying oh yeah but parties used to be important um and you're contrasting that or, or setting that into dialogue with the question of bowling alone so you know that the, you don't have bowling clubs anymore for example or lack of friendship they seem so alien to each other because a party a political party sounds very cold and instrumental I mean, it is literally an instrument, you know, it is an instrument. Um, and so it isn't a, just purely about sociability for its own sake. So I, I, maybe for a lot of people, it would seem that setting up parties as somehow a solution to the to the associationalism problem doesn't resolve the deep social crisis, even if it may seem to resolve a political one, right? How can a political party do anything like supplement friendships or sporting groups or volunteering? Yeah, I don't think we need to just look at parties in this uh, through an economist's lens. I think this is the issue because parties are instrumental institutions like unions are instrumental institutions. They're supposed to get you certain individual benefits. So people join them in this almost Olsonian collective action way because uh, they want to decrease the cost of certain individual approaches and therefore aggregate their force inside a party. So in that sense, what solution would it be for associational life if parties are just these money-making machines or uh, what you could call rent-seeking cartels, as only a liberal economist would call them. Um, but at the same time, when you actually see what the experience of party life is certainly in the post-war period, even though they're instrumental, they actually provide much more than just an instrument for individual benefits. So I don't know whether you've read that French sociologist Didier Ribon's memoir, Returning to Reims, um, where he writes about his upbringing in a communist working class film family in northern France in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And um, what's very striking about that book, or the way he describes his parents' lives within the PCF, is whether it's the revolutionary horizon or whether it's the material benefits, um, those are not the reasons for party membership. You're the reason you're in the party is because it's one of the only ways of building a social circle or having some type of social life on a daily basis. And so it's about the neighborhood you live in. It's about the people you interact with. And he said that it was more a social home than it was just an instrument of individual advancement, because we all know that the PCF, of course, had a very messy trajectory in government. And he also does admit that the PCF was homophobic, that it had certain anti-immigrant pulses that made it very difficult for him to sympathize with his parents' political sympathies. But what just comes through in the descriptions in the memoir um, is that it's so obviously not an instrumental or an exclusively instrumental institution. There is a kind of super contractual, I'd almost say sacrificial element to party membership, which is unimaginable today. Also because that's exactly what a party demands of people is that at some point your individual well-being has to be made secondary to other political priorities right no perfect and um i think that that question um that these questions actually today seem to get completely um overridden by another discussion which is basically the internet and 
you know, is it the internet's fault? And I think um, you rightly note that there was a discussion kind of in um, the 90s and 2000s, which uh, its main problem was the overestimation of what the internet could do, um, even politically. And we all know, you know, kind of clicktivism as well as, uh, you know, calls to mass demonstration and Facebook's going to transform the world um, to today's um, deep cynicism um, and pessimism about the internet across the board really about what it's doing uh, kind of socially as well as politically um, and the negative effects it has. I don't think you find there's no kind of um, political grouping in, in society that you will find actively defending the internet as a solution. Um, I mean, maybe there's some weird accelerationist types who <laughs> might still do, but otherwise, um, no one's, no one's had, has any good things to say about the internet. And I think the case against it is pretty obvious, right? So it's not no longer bowling alone as streaming alone. I think you, you're right in the essay. Um, you know, and, and the, it, it's very obvious the way that internet fills this void because it provides this sort of pseudo connection online. And also I think maybe even a sort of simulacra of power, because if you're streaming yourself from home, you can speak to multitudes. Like we say this as we record a podcast in various As we do a podcast, yes. Yeah. Why um, are you criticizing podcasts? No, I'm not. I love the simulacra of power that it provides me um, very dearly. I love oh, it. To mention um, the parasocial relationship is very important to podcasting. No, in, indeed. No, and I've met very many good friends through this. So, you know, um, it, it plays on both uh, on both sides, the social and the political. Um, but I guess, they, so like Anton, do you think... Um, yeah, is the is the internet discussion now too pessimistic, and how is there a way to rescue that, or should we just be ignoring the the internet question entirely, just because it becomes um, the norm, I guess, the social norm? You know, it's no longer is this online or is this offline. The the, the worlds are very integrated, hybrid now. I think I was very confused about this question for a really long time, and it took me a while to find a suitable frame to understand this. Because, as I said, there are two really bad options. Whether um, it's the internet optimism of the 2000s, in which both the crisis of political engagement or declining voter turnout, declining civil life will somehow be compensated by the engagement people can find online. And then there is the pessimism or the fatalism you see certainly after 2016, where the internet certainly becomes the monocausal source of all of these social ills, whether it's Trumpism, impotency, uh, the incapacity for men to date women or school shootings, you can suddenly pin all of this on the digitalization of our public sphere. And I think those are, frames are quite unsatisfying. And the powerful insight I hit up on at one point, I'm not sure who I was reading at the time, is what if we do not treat the internet as just a social technology or just a way of communicating, but actually as a social form itself or as a type of association? Uh, what if we compare an in the internet to a political party, to a union, to a neighborhood group, or even to a church? And then you can see precisely the social role that it fulfills is to fill the void, as Peter Mayer called it, that was opened up in the neoliberal era in the 1980s and 1990s, but how it both is a substitute and an exacerbation of this void. So this is where the Greek pharmacon noun comes in. It is a type of medicine you take to take care of disease, but which then actually exacerbates the disease itself. And I think that's a far more powerful, I'd say, social way of reading the internet. It's a sort of proper social theory mm -hmm. of the internet rather than a purely discursive or communicative one, which just sees it as a, as a tool. Um, because I think that both underestimates and overestimates what the internet has done. 
Um, it underestimates how bad the effects have been, but it also doesn't properly read it as a symptom of a crisis that predates the era of the internet itself. Um, and experientially, I mean, there's so many examples. You just have to look at a group of teenagers sitting in a bar, um, all on their phones together. Uh, it's, it's a sort of beautiful microscopic example of the lonely crowd you already got in the sociology of the 1950s and 1960s. Another example, which I always find quite telling, is that it took my sister and me half an hour to explain the concept of Tinder to my mom. And we just kept on telling her how it worked. And we said, like, and then you do this. And then she was just quiet for um, half a minute. And then she said, why don't you just go to the pub on a Friday evening? <laughs> and that was a sort of beautiful example of how she was culturally completely alienated from this new social form. Because her sense was just, well, if you go to the pub on Friday evening, you'll get a sense of the sexual supply that's available in society and then we had to explain to her well the pub doesn't function that way anymore people can't just go to the pub for that reason and tinder does actually fill a void for the people who are too afraid to date or walk up to people to a pub on a friday evening to add i mean to add to what anton said i mean i'm also thinking of all the times like i've been in a restaurant and uh, seen people obviously on a date both on their phones um and the bizarre, you know, I mean, like, I guess I'm old enough to find that extraordinarily strange, um, even though I don't think and hope I'm not as, you know, I don't think I'm as old as uh, Anton's parents. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is strange. I guess I don't know. Is it true, though, like, I guess, I mean, it's not a question I guess we can answer and we can't expect Putnam to answer it. But I guess I'd be curious to know what people think is, is it true that you wouldn't find, you know, if you're looking, if you're looking for a date, you wouldn't find it if you went to the bar because people have adapted to, um, you know, to expect the Internet to supply that? Or is it that the Internet simply kind of makes it easier to do, is more convenient, and therefore that's why you don't go to the bar? I think it's both. I think there is a fear or a sort of tension that is introduced into a lot of social relations, which as my mom said, or as my sister replied to my mom, um, yeah, sorry, but the bar you were talking about in the seventies and eighties simply doesn't exist anymore. So you can't supply uh, that same potential for connection. Well, at the same time, I think what is very striking about the internet and certainly about an app such as Tinder is that it has an ideal of bourgeois contractualism built into it in that it establishes prior consent even before social contact takes place. So the massive risk in my mom's time in the 70s and 80s is that a man would walk up to her on a Friday evening and engage in a conversation, and then you immediately have to make the choice, am I going to interact or engage with this person or am I not to? And I can clearly see it in the social skills my mom has is that she feels very easy just telling people to bugger off and not deal with her. So it induces or introduces a real big element of risk in a lot of social contact, which the internet has, I would say, neutralized or sanitized insofar as Tinder and certainly also the online world allows you to soften or at least cut the hard edge of a lot of social interactions that are usually fraught with risk. So on Tinder, it there's cuts, a prime... But it cuts both ways, right? Because yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, so the issue, because, you know, um, 
unsolicited dick pics, right? Like being um being a thing, you know? So like whereas before, you know, presumably like um in our parents' day that, you know, is like I mean it's a crime, right? Kind of indecent exposure or whatever the equivalent is and then in a different kind of legal context. Um and somebody who did that, everybody would recognize them as some kind of, you know, meant somebody who's mentally ill or a pervert. Right. Whereas now, like it's entirely normalized, you know, and women, girls um, are, you know, kind of um, have to deal with it on a day to day basis. So it's, you know, I guess it's kind of it's odd because it kind of phrase it phrase at both ends. So it's not just that you get the like you say, kind of um, less risk associated with um, the possibility of rejection or dealing with social awkwardness or having to um, kind of personally turn somebody down instead of just swiping right um, or swiping left, whatever it is on Tinder. Um, but on the other hand, you also get kind of um, behavior that would have been seen as perverted behavior kind of becoming much more extreme or extreme behavior becoming much more normal. Yeah. It's very you, hard to, I mean, it's you very can, hard to You can talk it. about this, Alex, right? <laughs> um, yes. Um, un- unsolicited podcast invitations as well, as far as I go, but, um, and the, it, it's very hard to lose face on the internet. You know, um, you, you might feel a little bit of shame, but it's very easy just to close the app and to kind of move on. Right. Um, whereas losing face is like a permanent threat, uh, in, in kind of in real life social interaction. Um, so I think it is just a kind of de-risking aspect and it, that it always has a, it's a, it's an easy solution. Um, and of course it, it de-socializes you because you become de-accustomed to having to do that, um, to have to, you know, chat someone up in a bar, um, and face rejection and so on. Um, anyway, from, from, uh, unsolicited dick pics onto, uh, Donald Trump, which I guess is, um, the kind of joke that they would make on some tonight show, us tonight show kind of thing. Um, but there we go. That's where Bunga's going um, these days. Um, w- one of the kind of central um, questions in the essay, Anton, is the degree to which this is um, kind of the, the breakdown of associationalism is um, a plank on which uh, fascism can walk, whether it supports um, authoritarianism or, or totalitarianism, and the extent to which um, what we have today with various forms of uh, the new nationalist populist right can be called fascism. And so there's a whole big discussion on this and we don't want to go, I think maybe in too much depth into that one, because we've discussed this plenty on, on this podcast before, including uh, with yourself and, and in various other episodes. Um, so we don't need to repeat, I guess, the, those um, arguments in full. Um, I, the, the, the more fundamental one, I think, is the one that was already hinted at earlier, which is about to what extent associationalism and its uh, decline matters and to whom it matters, right? So uh, I think you put this nicely, Putnam was right, but for the wrong reasons. Associationalism matters for democracy, but it hardly matters to capital and might even threaten it. Um, so uh, do you think that it doesn't matter to capital? Because earlier we were saying that, it, you know, it can be the breakdown of associationalism, the breakdown of trust that that um, implies also leads to a situation which can be unmanageable a bit for capitalism and its political representatives because society becomes maybe too chaotic, um, too fractious or whatever it might be. Um, so does it matter to capital or not? Um, again, I, I, I'm going to go for a cop out and say there's a contradiction on uh, capital side there and there's no pre-established interest that capital has in associationism. 
I think economically, and you certainly see this in the 80s and 90s, the pulverization of civil society and what I call a controlled demolition of the public sphere, desocialization, creates genuine avenues or creates genuine commercial opportunities for capital, whether it's dating apps, whether it's delivery apps, whether it's, for example, all the kind of online or digital substitutes people look for in the internet. Those are all ways to make money. And Tinder and Grindr, or even OnlyFans, for example, are um, profit-seeking ventures which are based or are premised on desocialization. So in that sense, sections of capital certainly benefit from it. More importantly, I think capital benefits from disorganization. Uh, it just doesn't face a disciplined working class that would eat into its profit margins or would threaten its prerogative on investment. So in that sense, it's an obvious benefit. The way in which it's not a benefit, and that's where it's turned between the profit motive and the atmosphere of predictability or stability, which any capitalist society also requires, is the political management of, political, of a capitalist society becomes much more difficult in an era of associational decline. So as people are leaving associations, it becomes much harder to buy consent because these people are not within your parties. I think you can clearly see this within the Tory party in the last 10 years, uh, which is actually the first mass party in European history. The Tories actually built their mass base before the German Social Democrats did. And them losing this base, as we see, actually generates massive volatility. I think the Brexit year showed this very clearly because there's such a disjunction between the base and your cadre and the people who populate the state that you don't know what's actually happening in society. And suddenly you have this massive group of voters who vote for an option which the party itself and many of your backers are actually not that interested in. Um, and I think you can see the same in the US where American employers, because they find it much harder to build social bases within society, um, it just faces a, a economy that's also more unpredictable. So again, the profit motive obviously drives capital in the direction of this organization, but their interest in stability or their interest in predictability means that they can't have, how should I say, it? it's not it's not unambiguous. There are also massive problems involved. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it depends also, you know, what sort of civic association we're talking about, because we can speak about it in blank terms and we can say that there's a general decline. And if you quantify it as social capital, then you can put it on a chart and see it declining pretty easily. But when you start to break it down a little bit more closely, there's obviously ones which are more right-wing and ones which are more left-wing. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit torn on, on as to whether to treat some of um, some civic associations as pre-political, um, not necessarily apolitical, but you know, or, or never political, but, but pre-political, or whether there's, they're always already political. And some things might be and some things might not be. And I think, so one interesting um, point you, you raised, or one example of a civic association, which might be worth talking through a little bit as, as a kind of key example, is something like a, a local housing homeowners association, right? Because um, that would seem to be pre-political, um, or even non-political in, in some eyes, but it seems to me that that will always lean in a certain direction because of the interests of the people grouped there in terms of uh, home ownership and especially in the sort of asset economy in which we in which we live. Um, and that's a, a case where it seems you I think you point out that it doesn't really decline, right? That those homeowners associations probably are still relatively stronger than the whatever left wing equivalent might be. Um, and that that presents that has clear kind of political effects, and that would be one case where you know the right is still doing okay because it um, still has its civic associations. 
but that's but it's a mixed picture because at the same time you also point out that lo- loads of local conservative associations in uh, in the UK um, have really withered right and, and just become old folks homes at, at best. Um, so yeah. I think the argument which is also made for example about whiteness or the sort of white communities which have so-called persisted into the neoliberal area which provide the social basis for a right to continue to prosper um, but that collapses two two qualitatively different forms of association so just think about what being a member of a catholic church in the post-war period was like or even being a member for example of a shop owners association the question of discipline is completely different in those two organizations the discipline that a homeowner association or that the leader of a homeowner association exercises on its members is completely different from the discipline a priest or a bishop exercises over its parishioners and the left it's also a cop-out for the left because they say oh see the right has just survived and therefore they're stronger and i think no the real takeaway is even more traumatic the right just needs fewer or less associational strength to be successful because it has a default advantage in any capitalist society Um, and a homeowner association also has entry and exit costs which are much lower than any of the associations which the right had so i simply don't buy the equivalence between those two types of institutions as i said the primrose league which was this tory neighborhood association that was founded in the 19th century that persisted into the 50s and 60s that was finally disbanded in the 2000s under the Ian Duncan Smith years, it's just simply not comparable to a group of asset owners in a provincial English town whose value is maintained by the low interest rates of the Bank of England. That is not the same associational infrastructure that the Tory party used to have. And pretending that they're the same is strategically very dangerous. I've got a separate question though, Anton, which is the, um, so I take the point obviously about the, the kind of the political aspects of it and the question of um, ordered social life that involves some degree of sacrifice and commitment. But nonetheless, there is, um, I mean, this is a point that Michael Lind put to us uh, or kind of um, when we spoke about kind of these related phenomena, he said, well, you know, the that collapse, the Putnamite collapse that you've seen has been much more severe for um, for the left or at least for the working class than it has for the middle classes and the wealthy. And he, I mean, and this is connected to those arguments about, say, marriage, for instance, right? So, you know, the middle classes have kind of... Um, delegitimized and um, devalued marriage um, which turned out you know to be kind of much more important for working class people as a kind of source of um, social support given relative um, you know greater economic insecurity whereas the middle classes kept on marrying um, even while they you know kind of delegitimized it as a source of um, patriarchal oppression of women, limiting women's career chances and what have you. Um, and so they get the benefits of, um, you know, they get the benefits of both, both of women's entry into the workforce at the same time as maintaining the kind of um, dual income and, you know, social support structure that comes with uh, long-term, you know, long-term um, bonding. So in that context, you know, isn't it, even if you have the kind of decline of those organizations such as the Primrose League or 
conservative um, party branches, you still have greater um, social connectivity among, say, the better off. I mean, at least, you know, I mean, I might be wrong, but I mean, I'm assuming this is that the data would bear this out, that you have greater kind of social connectivity among the better off and in times of greater inequality and less social mobility, those things also become self-reinforcing. And this is, you know, Branko Milanovic has made this point with respect to um, the, you know, marrying within your class. You can see the data for this kind of entering these self-reinforcing patterns over time. So it ends up strengthening all these effects around asset accumulation, inheritance, and so on. It becomes a vicious, a vicious, so the Putnamite effect actually creates a vicious cycle economically. Oh, definitely. It becomes a driver of inequality in its own right, certainly with the social endogamy you described and that class reproduction becomes much more contained. Um, I definitely think that middle-class associational life has weathered this era much better, partly because they have more market power. So it's just you have more money to sponsor and to support um, your remaining institutions. And this is a thing you already see in the 70s and 80s, working class institutions like unions are much more susceptible to economic downturns because people's wages decline and then they can't pay their dues and that means that the unions start to suffer economically while middle classes have more economic reserves so they keep on can keep on financing um, this and the marriage question the friendship question uh, just the family stability question are all examples of this nonetheless despite this persistence and i also agree about this for example with police unions which are very strong in the us the constituency of the carceral state, et cetera, et cetera. All of those has, have weathered this era much better. But what I don't buy is the idea that it is in any way comparable to the associational strength which conservative institutions used to have. And it is still a very sensitive and important decline which generates the volatility on the right we've been discussing on that podcast. And this is what I want to talk about insofar as, yes, there is inertial power to middle-class life, both on the left and the right, but there is still a massive crisis, um, which the right has no answer to. And I've seen several right-wing intellectuals reposting my Putnam piece and questioning the very idea that the left has suffered most from this. And I was flabbergasted by this because <laughs> being brought up in the world um, of the left hemisphere, it just seems very clear that we are the real victims here. But they say, no, actually, it's been even more catastrophic on the right. Um, and I guess it depends on who they see as the, the natural basis for the right. They say, like, no, this uh, is a more severe crisis on the right because the right has even more truly lost its bearings. And I think they're also talking interestingly about the cultural hegemony of a certain middle class left that has managed to hold on to power more. Right. So I was going to, that was very good because I, I wanted to get onto that uh, exactly because it, the lack of um, class cohesion amongst the bourgeoisie. Um, is a facet of the absence of a systemic challenger, right? Because it's not facing the working class. Um, you can become much more fractious between different um, cultural alignments, uh, production alignments, whatever, in, in between, the, between the bourgeoisie, between owners of capital. Um, but to take kind of the right more broadly, so not just owners of capital, I think because they don't have a, an obvious economic political challenge, to be faith that they face in terms of uh, imposing discipline um, at work um, or or trying to damp down um, push pushes for rising wages or anything like that any of the kind of traditional um, struggles against labor 
Um, the, the one area where the lack of associational density actually matters is in culture because it, the, those associations used to provide the social ballast, which could resist um, certain uh, kind of forms of social liberalization and cultural liberalization. So now, um, you know, society is completely defenseless against Hollywood, to put it in kind of the terms of, you know, American culture war tropes. Um, and not just Hollywood today, of course, but, you know, um, all the kind of you know, wokeness, for example. Um, that Talk about the attempt to found right-wing universities. A very right, good example perfect. of this. Yeah. Where yeah. the cultural power of the left within these middle-class institutions or these Mandarin institutions means that the right is completely powerless in this institutional landscape. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and that's where the, the thing really starts to bite for the right. Um, but ultimately in the long run, it's okay, right? I guess it, it can survive in that and the imbalance there, the, the inherent imbalance between right and left um, comes to bear because it can still rely on um, capital to do its work for it in terms of imposing discipline and, and so on in, in economic terms, um, even if it loses very much in cultural terms. And I think probably that is in some ways explains a lot of um, contemporary politics and why um, politics has been dragged also onto the train where of culture. Is the, where is the discipline and the, you know, I mean, how is that working? It seems like the Tories are very likely going to lose the next election in the UK, partly because they're damaged by the wave of um, kind of labor militancy that we're going through here in the UK at the moment. Um, you know, they're, um, they're looking at ways to kind of forestall it by raising the threshold in certain sectors for what count for allowing um, strike activity to go ahead, to raise it from 40% to 50% in certain um professional sectors you know but you're not looking at them kind of sending out the um sending you know the police to break down picket lines or something like that or to get um, scab workers into particular sections i mean i doesn't you know i don't see any evidence of the kind of um organized highly organized um smoothly functioning well disciplined and strategized response that you had in the eighties to, well, um, and obviously the, the labor challenge is much less, but nonetheless, I just don't see the evidence of the organization and the discipline that you're indicating. Alex. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Let me just, just to be absolutely clear, the discipline that capital imposes does, it does through the force of competition, you know, completely impersonal force. I'm not saying that, um, there so it's are nothing to do with bodies. political management. No, 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 exactly not. Exactly not. I'm just saying that the right, um, doesn't need, the den doesn't need to the same degree the dense network of associations as the left because ultimately it's more or less going along with what capital wants um whereas yeah. uh, the left goes entirely against it and the only thing that it has is the force of numbers and organization solidarity um and that's all the left can rely on so there's obviously a, an inbuilt imbalance there and and so because of that and because of the attenuation of class struggle um, the right doesn't need to, doesn't even need so much the, that dense network of associations for political management um, today because it doesn't need to face down, um, you know, organized labor in the same way. But it does leave it completely um, gaping, um, you know, in the face of um, a cultural onslaught, let's say. And so, you know, the, the kind of cultural conservatism faces no defenders. Be and that's where that's where the, the, the decline of associationalism really bites yeah, that, to the right. I'm not... 
the reason I feel like it doesn't quite work is because it seems to me like, you know, that cultural onslaught, as you put it, is very, you know, is very conducive. I mean, and this is something we've talked about many times. You know, identity politics is very good for carving out new markets in this sure. sort of highly competitive thing. So, you know, the sure. idea that it's some kind of um, counter power or, you know, threat. I mean, it's a threat to kind of cultural conservatives. But that's what I'm talking but, about because that is the because we're talking about the right um, and especially, you know, the kind of concerned with cultural conservatism, not just capital. And so I'm making that distinction, right? Um, in the same way that you would identify the, the left with the working class necessarily. Because, yeah, but the thing, I suppose the point is what they're, you know, so what the kind of the, say the university secessionists or the kind of right-wing secessionists that are trying to kind of establish institutions which aren't dominated by the mandarins or the brahmins, um, you know, what they're doing is they're responding to what they think is kind of a deranged left and a kind of, you know, new red guard kind of Maoism. And, you know, there's some truth to that because it does have elements of that, though obviously, you know, nothing like um, the extremes of Maoist China and with no real kind of organic connection to that political legacy. But what they're really responding to me, it seems to me, is an economic, you know, it's kind of a cultural the cultural froth of certain economic processes, right? So, which are part of the, and kind of, um, it's that kind of the economics, the economic aspect of the anime that um, that we've been talking about manifests itself in this way. So that's actually what they're responding to. They understand it as a left on the rampage, when in fact it's an economic, a cultural kind sure. of corollary uh, of an economic effect. And but the, yeah. just, to, just, to, just, to, just to leave myself clear, the thing that the right is concerned about ultimately, or the point at which it deviates from what capital wants, if you can put it in those terms, is on the cultural side, right? And that's why, um, that's why, hence the university secessionism. So even if they misidentify it as merely the left on the rampage, and rather than rather than something that is thoroughly um, sort of bourgeois and, and um, of a piece with capitalism's own operations. Um, you know the, the cultural thing is where where it matters for them, and that's why and that's why it's the terrain of struggle for the right. I, I agree with Phil that it's not nearly as agential as parts of the people on the right make it seem. It is a much more impersonal economic process that maybe can be encouraged or enhanced by actors on the left. So certain cultural trends within late capitalism obviously have supporters or fanboys on the left. But the right tries to personalize it too much insofar as they're looking for blame allocation or they want to find a person that's actually driving this when it's the course of our current economy that's generating all the cultural pathologies they're so worried about. And as you say, the middle class as a block has also had a particular cultural transformation in the last 40 years because the middle class throughout the 20th century actually used to be quite nationalist and conservative or organized around domestic states now the middle class is quite internationally branched actually has a much more cosmopolitan outlook that's also a massive change and in 1926 during the general strike in britain they actually got i think oxford students to drive some of the trams and buses they did yeah <laughs> across to London. organize even fire even kind of volunteer fire firemen yeah. you know kind of um, from the middle classes which is just i mean inconceivable it's today, inconceivable right? today just imagine <laughs> a oxford graduate nowadays replacing an RMT driver on some of the Southeastern railways. And that I think is a beautiful indication of how we've moved is the right simply can't go to the university anymore to look for strike breakers. 
because that associational infrastructure has gone. Yeah, very good. Um, maybe to close this off with a, with a kind of final sort of reflection, um, which is maybe a, a historical one. Um, so you obviously you referred to the way that Marx described the peasants in the 1848 revolution as a sack of potato, potatoes. Um, I'd written potatoes uh, rather than potatoes. Um, which I guess, you know, maybe you can use that as a, as a new verb. Who are the potatoes today? Who, who, what are the forces turning us into merely uh, a sack of potatoes, you know, atomized and therefore um, subject to uh, the appeals of a strong leader um, because we're not able to form our own associations? Actually, just to extend the potato thing, I guess we're also, you know, not just gathered in a sack, but gathered on a couch couch potatoes so yeah i think we can work with this 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 potato sort of theme um it, you point out that um, instead of peering aimlessly at the 1930s you know referring to this discussion about fascism about what, whether trump's a fascist or blah 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 um you would have to look at a much older primal age of democracy for suitable perils with parallels with our populist era so um i thought that was um Convince, uh, convincing or at least, you know, appealing, at least as a way of turning us away from this endless 20, 1920s, 1930s discussion, which is, as you say, a much more different world to ours than maybe, um, you know, the 1840s. Now, I don't, I don't think you're making an argument to go fishing for other historical parallels because as a way of exploring our time, because you can spin out a million think pieces from it, but I'm not sure how much it illuminates. Um, but nevertheless, I think maybe there is there is uh, something there. So maybe talk us through and um, what we have to learn from the primal age of democracy. I think we've all become peasants, or so much of contemporary politics is an equivalent of what used to be called peasant politics. Um, because what's very specific about peasants is not just the individual ethic, but also the lack of an experience of social labor, the lack of a certain experience of cooperation, which is very endemic to the current informal economy. And there, the sack of potato story holds up very well. Where I would caution against the 19th century parallel, and what I probably want to think about more, is that there are two big differences. Is That was an era of democratization or suffrage struggles. Um, so that was an era of democratic ascent rather than democratic decline. And that does make it very different insofar as the basis for militancy on the necessity of democratization are simply much more difficult to organize today because of course there's been de-democratization but you can't galvanize or mobilize people in the same way with the promise of democracy and the other is of course that the 19th century was a period uh, not just of an ideology of progress but it didn't have the 20th century behind it but also one in which um, economic growth and industrialization were still very prevalent and those two factors are completely absent today. So if you want to talk about Bonapartism as a sort of default mode of capitalist governance, uh, it makes sense to go back to the 19th century. But for the rest, there are also real limits to this frame, which I want to think about, in that we're in a much more hybrid and more difficult world, as I said in the round table around your book, um, which really defies all of the categories we've inherited, both from the 19th and the 20th century. And that can become an excuse for really annoying exercises in novelty, but it can also be a challenge to just think very hard about the specificity of the moment we're facing. Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I mean, I think the, the famous thing about the, the peasants, they they can't represent themselves, they must be represented. Um, there's the famous um, Marx line from the 18th Premier, the weight of the, the weight of the French peasantry is brought in in order to both electorally and in terms of you know foot soldiers is brought in to crush the 
um, the urban working class in the context of mid 19th century France. And that's the basis for Bonapartism. I mean, the difficulty is it's it's based on the political economy of the peasant household in you know agricultural France, uh, mid 19th century France, prior to the industrialization uh, you know where that would come subsequently um so whereas we have the kind of the lack of we have all the political anomie um this you know i think and perhaps you know i'm not i'm not sure that the kind of the service sector or even kind of um many swathes of what are seen as kind of white collar jobs don't have or you know that it's simply not the same political that kind of segmented political economy of the self-sufficient agricultural household no, absolutely it's not. a very yeah. different political economy and so you have the strange effect like you say of kind of a juxtaposition of kind of a political enemy and a populism that comes with it alongside an underlying political economy that is very much you know very much the opposite of self-sufficiency i mean there's no way to kind of stream alone without um, presupposing an enormous kind of infrastructure and complex integrated division of labor, even at a global level, if you think about the internet, you know. So Madsen, and, you know, that is kind of the um, the peculiar contradiction of the yeah, time, I guess. So let me just add, peasant self-sufficiency was still an economic reality in the 19th century, even when there's credit dependence in some ways. So their lack of experience with social labor is how Marx says that their political action becomes so difficult because they don't have an experience of cooperative labor, so they don't have a cooperative notion of politics as purely serial or atomistic. But today, if you look at the service economy, even if its experience is highly individualistic, so you're sitting in front of a laptop as part of the laptop class working on something, the work you do is hyper-social, is... Mm -hmm part of a division of labor which is even more complex and mediated than anything that comes before in history and that is an extremely strange hybrid because politically you're a peasant but economically you're basically a cyborg it's a sort of peasant <laughs> cyborg <laughs> that's good oh, but the, the, the dangerously close to the techno-feudal thesis there uh anton <laughs> yeah indeed oh no i just stumbled up oh jesus i don't know how we got here i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, very good. Unless you guys uh, have anything uh, you want to add, um, I think this uh, has all underlined the importance of unifying, um, maybe not as mashed potatoes. I think um, mashed potatoes would be a fascist dish. You know, it's this organic, undifferentiated mass. Um, but maybe nice, we have to nice. bind ourselves together like potatoes might be in a, in a gratin, for example. So um, on, I French, think that should French, be our political... French political. fries. French fries is a Belgian invention, right? <laughs> but they're not—they're not necessarily bound together. They're just in a container together, you know. Um, whereas a gratiné, you know, creates that dense bond, holds us together, and is strong, to, hard to break apart, but yet retains the naturality of the potatoes. No, those are still just that's still that that British solution is is still just atomized. <laughs> no, I think we definitely we're have coming, to be a gratin. We're coming to we're coming to Christmas, Alex, and you know, like. Um, Roast potatoes. So, who will speak for the roast potatoes? Who will stand for the roast potatoes yeah, on this that, podcast? That and the gammon next to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't have the gammon today, so someone's going to speak for the roast potatoes. <laughs> um, all right. Very good. Uh, maybe we'll leave the the gratin to twenty twenty three. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Bunga Cast in twenty twenty two, and especially to our subscribers on Patreon. We really do uh, appreciate. Every day, the engagement uh, that you have with what we do, and there's plenty more to come from us in 2023. So stick around. Um, if you don't subscribe already, please do so. And if you'd like to review us wherever you get your podcast, we'd greatly appreciate 
five stars. Uh, we're back in the new year with uh, reflections on the key themes of 2022 with Ashley Frawley. Uh, we're going to have Dylan Riley on to talk about capitalism and democracy, uh, actually rather similar themes to what we've been discussing here. We've got an episode coming out on degrowth and much, much more. So we'll see you on the other side. Everyone have a lovely Christmas or whatever you may celebrate and see you then. I just want PC their Christmas or whatever you may celebrate. It would just, just be Christmas. <laughs> Suck it. Should have just Christmas, said Winterville. Yeah. Winterville, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is yeah, it's part of the war on Christmas. It's good. Yeah.